morning. It's glad to have you all with us. Uh, for those of you who are joining us online, uh, it's good to have you with us also this morning. We're going to turn to our time this morning in God's Word. But before we do, let's go to him in prayer, uh, seeking his blessing upon the, the reading and the preaching of his word here. Let's pray. A God, we are people who desperately need to hear from you. And so as we come up and approach you and approach your word this morning, we, we need also your spirit to be enlivening our hearts and opening our ears and softening our souls to receive the, the rich, beautiful word of Christ that we have this morning. We pray that your spirit would be furrowing our hearts so that when the seed is planted, he might cause it to grow into deeper faith, perhaps faith for the first time, and cause it to flourish in fruit. Forgive us our sins. We pray that this would be a time here of, of growth of transformation and of, of being able to bask in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, Daryl began a short series as we are leading up into Easter on the kingdom of God. And today we're going to pick up that theme again on the kingdom of God. Last week, Daryl talked about the paradoxical nature of the kingdom, how there are certain realities that both need to be upheld in this sort of paradoxical balance. Uh, for instance, the kingdom comes in great power, we talked about, but it also enters quietly as well. The kingdom is inclusive as it brings in all sorts of people, but it's also exclusive as the only way to get into the kingdom is by means of Jesus Christ. Or one more that he talked about was that the kingdom is already, but not yet. It is already here in the world, but at the same time, though, it's a reality that is coming. And that's that paradox there that I want to actually hit on us or hit on today here. We're going to think about it a little bit more. What does it mean for the kingdom of God to be here right now and yet still to come? If the kingdom of God is here right now, if there is a legitimate reality to the kingdom in the world that I know and that I live in, then how do I experience that kingdom? Where is it? Or if the kingdom of God is to come, if its full reality is still something that's on the way, what does that matter for me right now then? Because it almost seems that, like when we hold the two in balance, that we're making either the kingdom so nebulous that it doesn't really mean a whole lot, or it's some far-off ideal, and it really doesn't mean a whole lot either. And with either way, its relevancy doesn't seem too pressing upon us here in this moment. But the kingdom, though, does have very real power right now. And it's actually because of its future reality, then, that it has already broken into the world that we can begin to see its power among us. So what do I, I mean by that? Well, the whole biblical story has a thread running from beginning to end, from, gener from Genesis to Revelation, of restored creation and restored relation. Of God dwelling with his people in a good and beautiful world, and then of that relationship being severed by Adam's first sin in the garden, ruining both people and ruining place. And the rest of the story, the story that you and I live in here, is one of God restoring what was lost. Both this intimate fellowship with humanity, and then of also of 
creation, all creation in which God and humanity dwelled closely together. And the kingdom of God refers to that state of restoration that is still to come then. It's a, a new creation fully redeemed that is full of the redeemed living in the personal presence of God. But see, that new creation kingdom that's not just far ahead is also here right now. It, it's already at work and it has a very real power now. It has a power to transform and a power to remake. The power of God to re renew and to restore all things. To transform what is ruined and fallen, as he will do someday, that power, that kingdom is already broken into the world as we know it. And though its cosmic transforming power will be on a full radiant display when it comes in full at the return of Jesus someday, that same transformative power of God by the Spirit given by Jesus, the King of this kingdom, is at work in very real ways right now. And it's seen then as the kingdom transforms its people with that same power. Our point idea this, or our point this morning, our main idea is that Jesus in his kingdom has power to save and to transform. He has power to save and to transform. That's the power of new creation, that's tr of transformation, is already at work in us right now. And to illustrate that, we're going to look at the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus from Luke 19. You can find the, the text either in your worship folder. If you have a Bible, you can find it there also. Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of God. He, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. If you grew up in church, I'm sure you know the children's song Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Some of you kids, I'm hoping to see some good reenactments of this in our trees after service. But there is something, though, much deeper and much more profound happening in this encounter than a little song might lead us to believe. The story in Luke 19 is the final scene before Jesus enters Jerusalem in the last week of his earthly ministry, before he undergoes the cross and rises from the tomb. Things are beginning to draw to a close, and the last personal interaction that we see here recorded in the Gospel of Luke before his passion is Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. 
So Zacchaeus is, in a way, this final and climactic example in Luke's gospel of what it means to follow Jesus and to be a member of his kingdom. There are threads woven together in the person of Zacchaeus here about what it means to enter into the kingdom that we see all throughout Luke. It's not the outwardly religious who are saved, but it's the outcasts who are welcomed. Tax collectors and sinners, just like our man Zacchaeus here. It's not the, it's impossible apart from God's power for a rich man to be saved, as Jesus says, when he talks to the rich young ruler. But here, though, we have Zacchaeus as an example of that, of a rich man being brought into the kingdom by God's power. The kingdom is received by those who drop everything and come simply and joyfully to Jesus. And again, as we'll see in Zacchaeus, that's him here too. And so Zacchaeus shows us what it looks like to enter the kingdom of God. His encounter with Jesus shows us the power of God to make the reality of the kingdom evident in our lives. Zacchaeus is called out then by the power of Christ into a new life into a, in, in, of the kingdom here. And he personally experiences a powerful transformation which can, can, which can occur only in the kingdom. And so I want us to look at, at the kingdom's power. And first we're going to look at the kingdom has power to save. It has real power to save. Because as we're introduced to Zacchaeus, we learn three things about him. First, he's a tax collector. The tax collectors among the Jewish people in this day were notorious individuals. They were seen as sellouts to, the, to their Roman overlords, collecting taxes from their brothers to send off in support of the empire. So getting a job as a tax collector wasn't something that made your family very proud. But it was a fairly lucrative job financially, because in second we see that Zacchaeus was rich. Being a tax collector was a job that would put you on the fringes of society, but really who needs friends when you have wealth? They amassed their riches through skimming money, overcharging with the fine print, hidden fees, and onwards. And so this also made them unpopular. And with Zacchaeus as a chief tax collector, one who was in a prominent position, it's not hard to imagine how he was a rich man. And it's not hard to therefore imagine the public sentiments about him. What are our feelings towards those people who make great empires for themselves from sordid means. So those are two, the two most important things that we learn about Zacchaeus. The third is merely incidental. He's short. It's a minor detail, but one that will advance the plot. But it so happens, though, that on this day, Jesus is passing through the city. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and this is perhaps the height of his popularity. And there are crowds of people buzzing about, hoping to see him with with their very eyes to see what the buzz about Jesus is. Perhaps even catch a glimpse of a miracle. And Zacchaeus is no different. Zacchaeus wants to see too. But there is that one final detail about him. He's so short and he's pushed behind the crowds that there's no way that he's going to be able to see. Now for most people, they would just give up and go home. But not Zacchaeus. What verse 3 says is interesting. Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. And he's so intent on seeing who Jesus was that he runs ahead and he does what no decent man would do in this time, particularly a rich man trying to keep his dignity. He 
climbs up into a tree. Now, why does Zacchaeus want to see Jesus so badly? The text isn't clear. We can really only speculate. It seems like more than just simple curiosity for him to do so because he did something that looked extremely foolish for everyone, but he wanted to see who Jesus was. And as we'll discover, he then sees who Jesus was. But let's first turn that question on ourselves. Are you here seeking to see who Jesus is? Do you know who he is? Maybe you're looking for answers about who he is or the significance about who he is. Now, for those of us who are regulars, we need to answer that question too. Because if Jesus, who he is and what he did, what he does, is the central figure of history, and if his coming kingdom is so valuable and his truth profoundly affects our lives, then we ought to continue to seek about who he is. Because all of us, no matter if you're searching for him or if you've known him for years, all of us need to grow in our recognition of him deeper and deeper, or perhaps even recognize him for the first time. Because growing in Jesus and his grace entails first knowing who he is. So let's not stop or just be content with the knowledge that we have of him. Zacchaeus wants to see who Jesus is. And he does see because Jesus then personally shows him who he is. Jesus shows Zacchaeus his power, his immense power, as he looks up at him in the tree and he calls him. He stops, he looks in the tree, and he calls him to come down from the tree because he needs to stay at his house. And Zacchaeus responds with joy and excitement. He hurries down, and as he climbs down from the tree, this is where we see the power. Zacchaeus is a changed man. He doesn't just receive Jesus because of his fame. No, Zacchaeus comes down from that tree changed from the inside out. We see that there is something powerful that happened within him. He is a new man. This is the power of Jesus at work here. He calls to Zacchaeus in a personal way and in a powerful way. The Son of God who is present and active as he spoke into existence. All of creation out of nothing is in this moment here speaking to Zacchaeus and summoning and bringing life to him as he's singing a tree. It's Jesus' power in his words that bring this, this man and his dead ways to life. And he raises his spirit up from the dead. This is the king in his kingdom, summoning Zacchaeus then to enter his kingdom, pulling him out of darkness of his own selfishness and his greed into his kingdom then of light and life. Zacchaeus' old self is crucified with Christ and remains up in that tree as he climbs down a new creation because of the powerful word of God at work there. Do we doubt the power of God to change the human heart? Are there people who we may, in the truth of our words, say, can only be changed and saved by the power of God, but yet still have shades of doubt in how we unconsciously perceive them or consider them in the back of our minds? I'm not talking about people like Stalin or Charles Manson, those people in history. I'm talking about the people in our regular everyday lives who we encounter, perhaps on a daily basis. Certain friends or family members who might be hostile or belligerent towards organized religion. Or those people who want to turn every single conversation you have with them to something about politics. 
or they are so self-absorbed that they don't really care about anyone else. Sure, we, we pray for them. We affirm with our mouths that only the power of God can change them. But do we really believe that? Do we pray with deep faith and longing to the God whose power alone can call them forth from death into life? Friends, don't sell short the power of God to change real people. It took the same recreating power of God alone speaking to you to bring you life that can do the same for anyone else. And Zacchaeus sees something else about who Jesus is, though. Out of all the people in the crowds who Jesus could have called out to and who he could have stayed with, who does Jesus choose to call? The chief tax collector. The outcast sinner looking like a fool up in a tree. We see that Jesus doesn't only have power, but that Jesus saves sinners. As he saves them, he shares fellowship with them too. He invites and he dwells with the most unlikely and the most unlovely in his kingdom. I love it in verse 5. Jesus says, I must stay at your house today. Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, the very presence of God is inviting Zacchaeus to have close fellowship with him. He's calling him to dwell into the presence of God. See, this intimate closeness and dwelling with God that humanity had back in the garden that was severed is now being restored here. The kingdom of God, the renewal of God coming to dwell with humanity is beginning to bloom in the home of this tax collector. Jesus is inviting himself into the home of this broken, sinful man to know him and to dwell with him. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see who he is. And by seeing Jesus then, then we can see God and what he's like. That he chooses the sinner and the outsider and he powerfully calls them to come and to dwell with him. He's not ashamed to share this close fellowship with you. Staying in, in, with Zacchaeus in that culture would have been equitable in the eyes of the public to sharing his sin with them. That's why the crowds grumble and murmur as we see in verse 7. But Jesus isn't afraid to identify with you. His reputation isn't on the line. He isn't going to leave you or be ashamed by being with you. It's the whole purpose for why he came. Jesus says in verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He willingly identified so closely with you on the cross that he would take your sin so that you then could have unhindered fellowship with God. Jesus addressed Zacchaeus in our passage, but Zacchaeus is addressing you here this morning, too. He's calling also to you that you might feel yourself to be an old sinner or on the fringes of society. But Jesus calls and tells you, though, that he wants to dwell with you. He wants you to know him this morning and be with him in this close way. And not because of anything that you do. He calls you to just simply come to him, to come out of that tree. And so do so. Come down because God is inviting himself to you this morning, not grudgingly, but because he wants to. We have to see there that the kingdom has power to save, but that's not all. The kingdom also, though, has power to transform. The kingdom has great power to transform. It's because Zacchaeus comes down from that tree brimming with new life. And this new life from Jesus transforms him into a whole new person. 
And this is most clearly seen in his repentance. His heart is changed. And he begins now to live according to the new life that is within him. The power of the kingdom is at work in him, and it's, and it's already growing in his life. And before we get into the specifics of his repentance, let's first look at how he goes about it. First of all, it's a public repentance. He, he is making this proclamation in front of everyone. And that's fitting because of his sins of greed and defrauding others are public in nature. They're well known to the community. Everyone's been cheated by him, you can imagine. But it's also a concrete repentance. Sometimes it's easy for us to repent in broad strokes. And then our resolve to push them away, push our sins away, and to pursue holiness comes in, in similar broad ways that re- they really don't have much meaning to them. They're very wide, but without a whole lot of depth. But Zacchaeus's repentance is much more concrete. He names his sins of defrauding others, and then he states much more pointedly what he's going to do about it. He's going to pay back everyone fourfold to who he's cheated. And let's not miss then with that the other part of his repentance. It's costly. And this is where he begins to get a little more specific. He first vows to give away half of all his possessions to the poor. Now that's certainly astounding, coming from a rich man. Half of all he has. But if you consider this also, that according to Jewish tradition, giving away 20%, giving away a fifth of what you had to charity was considered generous. And giving away any more than that was considered unwise or imprudent. And yet Zacchaeus isn't content to just do what was prudent in the eyes of the culture. His heart is transformed, and he is willing to part with so much and to share because his greed no longer dominates him. He bows to a different king now. His king isn't himself or his appetites, but it is the king of mercy who stands before him. And he now seeks to share in that same mercy that was given to him. And his second vow then is to repay fourfold to all whom he defrauded as a tax collector. Now, first of all, that's costly in the time and the commitment that it would have taken Because as a chief tax collector, you can imagine that he was responsible for countless incidents. But the financial restitution itself here speaks loudly about his new heart that is transformed by Jesus. According to Old Testament law, you can find this in Leviticus 5, 16, proper restitution for defrauding someone required paying back the full amount plus 20%. The full amount plus a fifth. But Zacchaeus isn't going to settle for that. He vows to pay everyone fourfold. In other words, he's not just going to settle for the, the full amount plus 20%. He's going to pay back to everyone the full amount plus 300%. Now, this was a standard of restitution that was re- reserved for the more serious crime of stealing livestock. The point of all of this here is that Zacchaeus's repentance is costly. The willingness that he has, though, is to not only make things right, but to do so in an extremely generous way here, it is absolutely astounding. And what is it that could take a greedy man and change him in an instant to renounce his old ways and to suddenly act with such generosity? It's the power of Jesus and his kingdom at work within Zacchaeus. He's a new man transformed with the new creation, with the recreation of that future kingdom breaking into his own life and renewing him 
into someone entirely different. See, when we come face to face with Jesus' grace and generosity that he has for us, for sinners and for, for broken outcasts just like Zacchaeus, he changes us so that our hearts begin to reflect his heart with the same grace and generosity. When we begin to understand more of his mercy that he has towards us, mercy that he shows us every day as we fail, as we fail but yet still upheld only by his covenant love, then that, that same mercy takes root in us and it transforms us more and more in his image. It's a new affection that expels our old ones. As people in a kingdom of grace, it is the power of God that slowly then changes our thoughts, our patterns of life into the reflecting the ideals of the kingdom. Zacchaeus was moved in his repentance and in his generosity to not just meet the bare minimum of the law. He could have given away much less than he did and been perfectly compliant on the outside. He could have gained a lot of approval. Everyone would have said, great, good job. Wow, that's a changed man. But Zacchaeus wasn't changed by the law. It wasn't because of any adherence to the law or of rules or even his ability to do so that changed him. No, it was by the power of the gracious Son of God. And since his life didn't come by following the law, then there was no constraint upon him to live according to the base standards of the law's requirements because actually it was something much more. He was freed to give much more. He was able to give him whole, his whole self. He could be so much more generous and give with such more abundance because of the freedom that he now had to now reflect the benevolence of a new king. A king who doesn't give us according to the minimum, but a king who gives us with grace abounding. Friends, it's the grace of God. It's the power of God for salvation that transforms us. True change comes from a new heart. God's laws, his commands, show you the good and the righteous things that God desires, but those can't change your heart. It cannot free you from your misguided desires. A new heart only comes from God's grace and his power. Earlier I said, don't sell short the power of God to change people. I want to rephrase that slightly differently here. Don't sell short the power of God to change you. Don't sell short the power of God to change you. Is there any transformation or change in your life that you think is too radical or too deep to happen? Are there struggles that seem too deep or sinful patterns that, that you've come to accept will just always be there? Friends, don't discount God's transforming power for his people. But the thing is, it can't be done on your own power. True change has to happen from the inside. It has to happen from the heart. It must come from God as he works within you. That needs to be primary. Philippians 2 says, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But where's the hope in that? It's in the next verse, for it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let's get practical. What does change look like? And how does it come to me? First, change isn't simply outward conformity. A visibly changed life comes from a transformed heart. We seek God's power to change us. We come to him in prayer and in faith. Because we can try to live in an outward conformity to goodness, 
and we can try to meet a base standard, but does this really change if the heart isn't involved? Zacchaeus could have given what was required in the law and been in perfect compliance on the outside. But if it wasn't done out of true charity or if it wasn't done out of a true desire to love what God loves, then that wouldn't have been actual change. It would have been only trying to meet the bare minimum and gauging change from that. So often that's what we relegate change to, only addressing habits without addressing the heart. Those of you with kids or who have raised kids know, know this. You've seen when you, when what kids do and when they're supposed to do, you know, you've seen what kids do when they're supposed to do something, but without having a real heart in it. Right? When you tell someone, say sorry, just come on, apologize to your brother and sister. What oftentimes they do, they mumble, they mumble I'm sorry. They don't look them in the eye. They might look away. They might run away and then come come back and say it there, but no real heart in it. It checks all the boxes, but there's no heart. Us adults aren't too different than that, though, either. Real change isn't only meeting a certain standard from the outside. Real change occurs in the heart. Transformation means foremost loving and desiring what God loves and desires having our affections change to grow displeased with our former desires and instead being drawn to what God calls good and holy. It's not just not looking at pornography, but growing in, God's, growing in love for God's design of sex and of looking at the image of God in others. It's not merely being at outward peace with others who we may not get along with, but it's also growing in genuine love and affection for them. It's loving what God loves and desiring what God desires. And that means repentance is a sign of change. It's a sign that we are longing to grow in righteousness and are dissatisfied with how we failed to do so. Real contrition and repentance in the day-to-day -day is the fruit of change in your heart. It's a sign of your desires being changed at the deepest level. And so we live a life of ongoing repentance when we do that, it brings us back over and over to God, mindful that we can't change ourselves no matter how much we try, and that we need him to mercifully change us, being reminded again that he's willing and able to do just that. And also, though, remember that you don't do this alone. I'm not the only member in the kingdom, and neither are you. We're all brought in together, and we're all growing, and we're all being transformed with each other so seek out others to walk along the road with you, to encourage you, to pray with you, to even point out the ways that you are being transformed over time that you might be blind to. And let's not forget that the gospel has power to not only save the worst sinner, but to change our worst patterns and love what God loves. And by God's grace, may the power of the kingdom of God to save and to transform us be evident tall among us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that though we cannot save ourselves, we cannot change ourselves, that power is within you. Thank you for giving us your spirit to, to bring that change to us. And Lord, please do a, change what, what, what we love into what more and more what you love. 
Thank you for stories like this that show the, the reality of the kingdom at work in real people and give us the confidence and the hope in your promises that they are not in vain and that you will be at work in us for your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.